Welcome to season four of the Source Wheel podcast. Um, I'm your host, Charles Royston, and I have had such a good time exploring just all that there is to explore that I don't get to explore in my professional life uh, about spirituality. I've gotten in season three to ask some wonderful people about where spirituality has been most helpful for them throughout their lives. And in season two, I got to meditate through the chakras with my friend, Noel Espinoza. And in season one, I really was just getting started. I thought I was going to have a co-host and do this in tandem kind of conversationally throughout our own experiences, plus our own interests. Um, but when that didn't work out, I continued and I continued just exploring my own interests in spirituality. And I'm here again with season four to do that. And for the first episode, I wanted to kind of start with, and I think I'm going to title it, Becoming My Own Minister. In 2006, my friend Chris Newitt and I decided that we were going to get ordained. I had been asked to do a wedding for a lesbian couple that I'd met in anthropology. They never did end up having their ceremony, but I went and got myself ordained and Instead of doing Universal Life Church, which was the only online ordination I'd thought of, and instead of the traditional route of actually becoming a minister, which I actually had thought of, or a monk anyway, I searched different organizations and I found um, secular humanism to be a bit too atheistic and, and then just added spiritual humanism into it. And I found this website that really captured what it was that made sense to me. And so I became ordained to perform weddings and other sorts of rites uh, as an officiant or a celebrant. And I've done 19 weddings since then. And, and yet uh, what I've found most useful is in the identity of a minister is the places in which I've become my own minister. And what I think about the term minister is something I learned from my minister mother. It just means to serve. Uh, to do God's work, and it doesn't have to be at a at a lectern uh, in front of a church or a congregation. It doesn't have to be um, ordained, sanctified, or anything like that. Ministering is something that we all do when we're just helping others. And in many ways, I've considered my teaching career, 20 years of teaching at Cal State Fullerton, to be a form of ministry, a form of well, this is the legacy of the teachers in my family. Um, my grandfather, my minister mother's father, was a Lutheran um, Sunday school teacher for years, um, and his church loved him for it. He was a he was a minister of sorts in that capacity. So when I think of ministering for myself, I think about you know help being a facilitator, being an advocate, being a guide for when I'm in a time of need, when I'm in a time of doubt, a time of fear, um, all those things that you would think of would be someplace that you would reach out or a time you would reach out to a, a minister, somebody who's capital M minister or priest or rabbi or imam or someone who would guide you in that capacity. But I've been really working to do that on my own. Um, so if I'm going to talk about my own process of becoming a minister to myself, I should talk about why I don't seek the traditional ministry. Um, I did when I was young, and I loved it. 
some of my favorite memories were from uh, my early days as a Christian in the Methodist church, singing the songs and the hymns and having such great fellowship, um, having beautiful mentors of creativity and integrity, a sense that this was a wholesome place and a hopeful place to live and thrive. But then I was in a tragic car accident in high school, which I've shared in, in other episodes. And it was easiest at that time at my 17 year old brain to just make it all God's fault. I couldn't possibly grasp the enormity of responsibility uh, at that time. So God became my scapegoat and that was helpful. Um, for me to not overwhelm and go into a very dark place. But uh, at the same time, it broke my faith and it broke my trust and it broke my reaching out. And I became very cynical and atheistic on purpose um, as, a, as a punishment. And, uh, and yet I never gave up on spirituality. So this is what led me to seek the comforts in the wisdom of Buddha and the Buddhism path is because it is the most atheistic of all the spiritual traditions that I discovered, and it still allowed me to practice while still holding my grudge that God let me down, God let terrible things happen, you know, I wasn't protected. And yet it left me with a lot of resistance to faith, faith work and spiritual work, and it's taken me a long, a long time to get back into it. And I really want to shout out uh, my experience in the wisdom course through Landmark Education, I had a moment um, sitting in an exercise in one of the weekends where I was in a conversation. I was in a conversation with God and I was asking God, what do you think of me? Am I okay? Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Am I worthy? And the answers in my heart, in my deepest, truest uh, purest form of my heart were yes, yes, yes. And oh my gosh, so much. Yes. There was such an abundance of love and welcoming grace and presence in there. And I started weeping because I had lived a long time, not believing that in fact, believing that I was cursed and that no one can get too close to me without getting hurt, um, potentially very badly. So I kept a lot of people at an arm's length or longer, or I ran. And this was a moment for me where I could have a coming home back into my own heart and stop the running from and feel that I had been good enough all along. I had certainly done enough, deserved enough, and that I could begin my process from that moment forth of being loved by God on purpose. And that was a beautiful thing. And that has started my whole process of seeking um, restoration of my faith, restoration of my um, spirituality, and um, really ultimately led me to this day, this moment here with you. I think another reason I might have become a minister of my own path is to honor the legacy of my mother, uh, who is a minister and who is someone I admire very much. You might have heard the uh, episode from last season where I interviewed her and her husband, my dad, stepdad, Harry, and you could feel the love. And yet when I got ordained online to be a minister, she was furious. And I imagine, I could imagine even in the moment of her 
disappointment that it felt invalidating of all the hard work she went through to become ordained in the traditional sense. And all I had to do was submit $10 and click a, click a mouse button. And I was under no pretense that what I had done was equivalent. Um, I think she was also concerned that if I were to be performing weddings, that I would be taking people away from the church and away from God. And I knew in an instant that I had a, a moment of choice. And instead of letting her be upset with me, I asked her to coach me. I said, well, make sure, why don't you make sure you coach me? Why don't you be my mentor? Why don't you teach me your ways? And and, and I, I will honor those ways. And so I've done that since. And I'm also honoring the legacy of Harry, my dad, my stepdad, the man who uh, my mom found and fell in love with and married and brought into our lives has been uh, a model of being a wonderful non-ordained minister. He has been a, what's called a Stephen minister at times in his life, which Stephen ministry is a practice of bringing communion, bringing faith, bringing uh, liturgy, bringing practice, um, spiritual practice and, and inclusion out to people who can't make it into the church. Um, and so he's brought to bedsides um, all around the, the community and prayed with people and read scripture with people and and been a minister of sorts. And that has always opened up the definition of ministering to me as well as um, what my mom shared. One of the things that we study in anthropology is the traditions of culture that occur in certain populations at certain times of uh, evolution, societal evolution. And one of the things that's very clear is that once upon a time, when we were in family bands and everybody was communal and getting together and uh, you know migratory, everybody had to pretty much learn everything. You had to learn how to find food, preserve food, make food. You had to learn how to discern what was food and what was poison. You had to learn how to f protect yourself from the elements. And yet now, flash forward, we live in such a specialized world where specialists in every field and, and we grow up not knowing how to do anything but the one thing that we do. We have to, we get encouraged in life to find one thing we're good at and do that thing and then basically pay for everybody else's thing. And 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 that's fine. But what I, I, I think that it does is that it creates a disempowering approach to spirituality. Because if we are raised to think that only specialists are capable of doing something, then only priests, ministers, rabbis, imams, and, you know, can, can do spirituality. And we have to go uh, seek them and exchange and have um, almost like a purchase or a commodification of spirituality and that we can never really do it on our own. I think this is really the heart of what Martin Luther um, was upset about, what had become of the Catholic Church at the time was this separation from the people. And he wanted the word of God to be written in the language of the people instead of only in Latin. And so he wanted it in German. He wanted to give it to his people. He wanted people to be able to have access. And, you know, this became the protest uh, that was at the heart of pro Protestant religion. So I, I feel like I was raised Protestant and I am still protesting against this notion that 
um, specialists are needed for us to become spiritual, for us to become uh, enlightened, for us to become saved, for us to become at one. And I believe it's the heart of Protestant Christianity is that idea that you can, with the, your relationship, um, with your understanding and your seeking and your searching, that you can actually find that. So in many ways, I still feel like I'm honoring my Christian upbringing, even though I'm no longer exclusively Christian. Um, I still embody that same spirit of wanting to have a personal relationship with my creator. Okay, so I also want to talk about the downsides of being my own minister before I talk about how amazing it's been. Um, I've been lonely. There's something I crave about what the Buddha calls the, the Sangha. You know, in Buddhism, the three jewels of Buddhism are the Buddha, which is not the person, but the idea the idea of looking up to a model, um, looking up to uh, an example, looking toward a focal guiding point um, of enlightenment. The, then the path becomes the Dharma. The third, the second jewel is the Dharma, which is to walk the path with integrity, find right occupation, find right effort, right you know movement, things like that. And then the third being the Sangha, the community, the supportive, wonderful community in which you can share and grow and thrive. Being um, a, a hedge spiritualist, in other words, at the edge, at the hedge, um, I'm lonely most of the time, and I crave wanting to share what I'm doing with like-minded folks. This is very much the inspiration for this podcast, is I'm now ready to start sharing more about the journey and connecting with people. I crave it. When I go to someone else's community and visit another church or another um, synagogue or a temple or a mosque. Um, I feel welcomed. I feel loved, accepted, encouraged. Um, and yet I still feel like a visitor. I don't feel like a, I don't feel like when I sign in that I am who they're looking for. You know, often they're looking for the next person to become a member. Um, I don't feel like I'm open to that because of this path that I've been on. Um, and so that's, I, I can, I can contribute to my own sense of loneliness by not joining. Um, and yet I do believe in my path. Okay. Now I can talk about the major upsides of walking this path. And again, they're upsides for me and I share them in the case that they resonate with you. And for somehow, um, my story becomes a model of walking a path for you. And my path ultimately is back to the loving embrace of God always. Um, as Ram Das says, we're all just walking each other home. Um, that, that quote resonates with me. I feel a kinship to all humanity by not choosing one particular path. So I feel a lot of peace in that. I feel a lot of confidence in those moments where I've been able to be my own minister, those moments that I'll share a few anecdotes about. I've been able to guide myself and nurture myself and respond to myself. Um, it's very empowering. There's a sense of knowing now that I can always do that. No matter what life twists and turns, I can always be there for myself. I'm strong enough, um, capable enough, resilient enough. You know, I can even do something about the downsides of it, the sense of, loneliness that I experience. One of the experiences of being my own minister has allowed me to add minister 
to my loneliness. I can show up for myself when I'm feeling lonely and I can do, you know, a guided imagery or a meditation or breath work that helps me feel connected to the whole, you know, connected to God energy, connected to the divine in everyone, connected to myself at my deepest and highest levels. When I feel self-doubt, when I feel like maybe I should this, should that, shouldn't this, shouldn't that, when I start to question, I can see the questioning part of myself just being the voice of the loneliness, trying to convince me to just go, you know, get a specialist, you know, go have somebody else do it for me. Um, it would be so much easier, you know, just, it would be, I'd be able to go to sleep and relax and, you know, float into spirituality without having to do any work. I can see that self-doubt and love that self-doubt Love that little kid energy in me that really wants to be in a community, wants to run around a big sanctuary um, with other kids and feel safe, feel like the doors uh, were made to protect me and keep the bad out. It's also empowering because I'm no longer limited to other resources to connect to my own source. In fact, that's what I think of when I think of the word resource. I can imagine the S capitalized resources are not sources. And so even though the Bible contains some wonderful wisdom, it will never be a source. It's a resource. And the goal is to get it, get connected back to the source of it, the source of the wisdom. And so as long as I remember that and have practiced that, then anything can be a resource. It doesn't have to be relegated to that, which has been approved by, sanctified by, other humans on the path. I can find it in a leaf, the wind, the sudden appearance of a bird that I'd never seen before, the smile, glimmer, twinkle of another human, the experience of joy in my heart. Um, or let me share this anecdote from very recently in my life. I went to the Central Park in Huntington Beach where I like to walk and I went to sit on the bench that I think was dedicated to my dad, although I still have not confirmed that. It simply says, Chuck, he loved this park. I was craving connection with my dad and I went and sat there and just sat there breathing, being, watching, communing, acting as if I was sitting with my dad, even though it was a cold, hard cement bench. Well, over the two weeks that followed, I kept seeing images of my dad reminders of my dad, symbols that just connected back to him. And normally I'll see one or two of these, but in this case, I kept seeing it everywhere. I mean, I saw a man at a restaurant. I would have walked up to him and, and had to shake him to make sure that he wasn't. He looked so much like my dad. I saw someone driving a similar car on the road later that day. A few days later, I don't remember what it was, but some sort of word or phrase that reminded me of him. Um, I'd pass by Franklin truck parts on the 405 and remember how he used to always tell the story of, well, that was one of my first customers. And, and in those moments, I'm getting the answer to my prayer. I guided myself to that bench. I trained myself over years to, to be in tune, to, to be open to and, and, and a request for synchronicity. And it shows up for me in a way. It's really beautiful when I ask for it. And I feel so close to my dad that he has continued to 
show up for me. That's how connected I am, is that all I have to do is ask. I wanted to share a few more anecdotes of my own leading myself through the path. I'm sitting in my bedroom and there's a two and a half foot tall, gorgeous mahogany colored resin statue of Quan Yin on our dresser slash altar, uh, surrounded in crystals. The story of her is quite remarkable. and But this one really was the start of my surrender experiment. If you want a book recommendation, Michael Singer wrote a wonderful book called The Surrender Experiment, where he just gave in to the nudgings and noddings and proddings of God for a year. I had this eye on the statue when I went to visit a friend. He worked at a store that had this statue there, and it just marveled me. Kuan Yin had always represented compassion for me, and I'd always craved compassion of the Divine Mother, and for some reason she was my icon for that. And I always felt something very strong when I'd look at her, think about her. I saw the statue and loved on her and walked away. I wasn't going to, I don't know, I wasn't going to buy it for whatever it cost. I don't remember. I wasn't going to tote it back home because it was large. And I, I, I forgot about it. I let it go. Practice non-attachment. Well, Will really loved me and had agency and packed it up and shipped it to me some months later. And I thought, wow, Kuan Yin and I are really meant to be together. That's pretty cool. So I had that statue sitting on an altar downstairs for years until flash forward, my friend Tony Moss was building a community. He had been my mentor and guru of such import for so long that when I heard of that, I was so moved by what he was creating and wanted to support him. And I didn't know how. He seemed so altogether already awesome. I didn't know how I could contribute. But in one of my meditations, the Kuan Yin statue kind of, I got the nudge looking at my statue that I, that it thought it should be given away. And I was, I was furious and I, I refused. I ignored it. Every time I sat in meditation though, it was there, that reminder, that nudge, that this is what's meant to be. This is what's next. Could you surrender? Are you willing? The message I got in the subtext was, are you willing? Am I willing to surrender to the nudges of spirit? Am I willing to have a more spirit-led life? Am I willing to put aside my idea, my ideas, my opinions, my agenda, and have room for, have space for grace to move through me? So I said, okay. And I put Kuan Yin in the front seat. I buckled her into a seatbelt and I drove to Los Angeles to meet Tony and gave her away. It was a freeing experience, although not without its mental anguish of attachment and loss. Um, but it was freeing. I felt like something big was happening. Well, flash forward three more years and my wife is going to a tea or cacao or sacred dance or ecstatic dance event that Tony was hosting. I think I was supposed to go, but I didn't. Well, my wife comes home that night and says, guess what? I have something for you. Tony said you should have this back. And Kuan Yin came back into my life and it made me think of that saying, if you love something, set it free. If it was meant to be, it will return to you. And it's such a reminder of the surrender. It's such a reminder of the majesty and the grace and the mystery and the wonder. 
Okay. I want to share another one. This one is going to mention another guru, mentor, spiritual person that I learned from and learned how to become my own minister from watching their ministering. Um, shout out to Larissa Stowe. Uh, I met her in Long Beach. She hosted yoga slash work, you know, kirtan and um, meditations and all kinds of stuff in her um, converted garage into or a converted studio space in their backyard. Her and Greg were very generous to invite people into their in their home space. I believe it was every Tuesday night, and we'd go and sit in a circle on the floor on our yoga mats. Yeah, we would do some yoga, but we did more um, chanting, singing, um, invoking. And we even had, um, I remember the first time I ever really felt the transcendence of essential oil was a, a, a session with Larissa. But she would sing and we would chant and we would do all these wonderful things. And I was always just in awe of her. And yet this awe wasn't as empowering to me as what I now practice because I kept lifting her up, lifting her up, lifting her up and feeling so much further away from that lifted experience. I was lifted, but it always felt like it was because of her, because her power, her charisma, her influence. And well, but she did teach me the Gayatri mantra, which is one of the most ancient mantras in, in Sanskrit language. And I can't imagine how many times by how many people for all these different intentions that it's been chanted if it's the oldest on the planet. And I now knew it. I chanted it so many times with, with her and with the community there. And then I went away. And I think I went away because that's what I, that's what I do. I want to learn something very well. And, and then I want to, I want to go away and see if I can actually prove that I, I own it, you know, that, that I've embodied it. Well, I did that, but I didn't keep practicing the mantra. Well, time had passed and I'd been missing Larissa, the community, the practice. And so I called and left a message on her voicemail and asked her if she would please call my voicemail and chant the Gayatri mantra into my voicemail. So I would always have it to listen to. And that message was out there in the universe, right? I'd set that out there and I know she's busy. She hadn't gotten back to me yet. But I'm walking on campus at Cal State Fullerton, and there's a vendor there that was selling tapestries, posters, trinkets, whatnot. I started wandering through his store. He was a short, stout Indian man with a bright face, big, luminous eyes. And I remember asking him if he had any ohm tapestries, any ohm tapestries, because I knew that that would be something evocative, invocative for me. And I started looking through them, and one of them had the words of the short version, at least, of the Gayatri mantra on it. And I looked at it, and he saw the look on my face, and he asked me if I knew what it was. And I looked at him. Remember, I'd called Larissa two weeks earlier because I had forgotten the Gayatri mantra. And I looked at him, and it came back to me instantly in the moment, and I started chanting it to this must-be-bewildered man. If you're listening to this and you don't know me, I'm a six-foot-two, 220-pound white man. And so this man couldn't have been more than five-foot-one. Uh, I'm towering a foot taller than him. 
And there's no way he would culturally assume that I would not only know of the Gayatri mantra, but be able to invoke it in such a profoundly spiritual way in the moment like that. And it came through me it, as if I was being played by the mantra itself. I wasn't recalling it from memory, uh, or at least not the memory that, because I couldn't recall it in the past two weeks. It was, it was coming through. It was bursting through. And I had a moment of revelation that this is what it means to, to bloom you know, like a lotus. This is what it looks like to, to shoot out of the mud of our own self-doubt, our own self-consciousness, our own self-concept, and just be, truly have a moment of being at one with this man, at one with this moment, at one with the mantra, at one with everything that's ever been at one with the mantra. Um, and it was so powerful. The, the two of us just stared at each other for a few moments afterwards. And then we snapped back into the capitalist world and he charged me full price, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> and uh, I brought home that tapestry and I can now look at it now on my wall, just a foot from the Kuan Yin statue. Um, so that's another moment where uh, I learned how to become my own guide and learned how to trust and surrender and, and had this mystical experience. Okay. So... As I'm retelling these stories, though, I'm having the experience that it's perhaps not entirely true that I've been my own minister, and that's been the whole story. Um, at each point, there are others involved. Um, there are others who have made the model clear, um, have guided and in this next story, um, my wife invited me to one of her events through the Diksha community. Uh, I don't remember what it was called, but I was invited and I accepted and I was excited to go. I think it was a two-day event at a hotel nearby uh, of breath meditation, um, mantra, mudra, so hand positions as well as things to say, and and you know, of course, perceptual things, wisdom concepts to contemplate, to reflect upon, to ask for guidance within, and ultimately leading to the very last day where we were to look upon an image of a golden orb. The, the exercises were, I believe, um, building up to this moment, or at least that's how I experienced it, because I wasn't really getting much from the exercises on Saturday, but when I went Sunday... I decided to go sit down away from the chairs so I had plenty of time to stretch out. I mean, I gave myself, I guided myself to have the most supportive experience and I did the breath work, I did the, I did the mudra work and when I opened my eyes as I was instructed to then open my eyes and just gaze into this orb, I instantly saw uh, an embryo in a womb. And I understood it as a glimpse into my embryonic self. And I felt what it must have felt like, or I felt what I've carried, probably more accurately, I felt what I've carried throughout my entire life about being born the third um, in, in a line of Charles Whippo's um, son of a, a man uh, who or named me after him and then left my my mom and us kids by age three or i was three and 
my nickname was Chip, which everybody knows is Chip off the old block. And I had a longing for identity in a lot of my life because I didn't quite know who I was. I didn't have a whole picture because I didn't really know my dad. And what I got in this embryonic meditation was that, oh, it was eyes open, although I could barely see through all the tears. It was a good, ugly cry because um, it was a lot of emotion being released. But what I got from that moment was that I was born into a lot of expectation. Uh, this was a struggling, strained marriage. I was the firstborn son, namesake. Um, and I felt like I was born into a lot of expectation, like maybe this will be it, maybe this, maybe this. Um, and, and I felt like I felt like that burden of um, imminent disappointment. And I also felt in that same instance that none of it was mine genetically, inherently, biologically, like it wasn't meant for me. It wasn't supposed to be me. I was supposed to be free, free of expectation, free to be me. I look back throughout all my life and everything I've been drawn to, attracted to, everything that's resonated with me has been consistent with freedom of self-expression, freedom to be, peace, love, acceptance, everything. And I just got a profound sense of this is who I am. This is who I truly am. Not someone burdened by expectation, not someone who's meant to fix something for someone else, not someone who was the answer to somebody else's problem, um, just someone who was meant to be a beacon for freedom and self-expression, love and acceptance, peace and understanding. You know, No accident that I became the hippie of the family I'm who I am because that is who I am. So I had that profound moment from that experience um, and it was, okay, I'm not sure how to share this anecdote, but I wrote down my Druidry practice and wanted to share a little piece about that. So I've always been into nature. I've always loved trees. And there's something resonant for me about tree and the number three and, you know, having this relationship with trees, walking through the Arboretum at Cal State Fullerton has always been a, a reset, grounding, invigorating spiritual practice for me. The Arboretum back home in Wheaton, Illinois has always been a beautiful place for myself and my family. Um, climbing trees, gazing up at trees, leaning my back against a tree. And so when in my practice I've been longing for spiritual connection, it, it doesn't call to me to sit in a room with no ventilation and just meditate. I do that. Um, I find some solace in that. But when I'm outdoors, I feel something completely different. I feel a John Muir kind of a spirit in nature. And so I started to do that. I started to walk around my central park and just open myself up to the relationship to whatever spoke to me. And instantly at the beginning, when I did that, I was very called to this particular kind of tree, gray bark, wrinkly, looked like elephant skin. They had it the, everywhere. There was a, there was a branch that had fallen off in its growth. There was an eye in its place. It was very unmistakably an eye. And I would sit there sometimes and just gaze at the eye and go into meditation and go into a profound experience. And I still, at this point, didn't know what the name of this tree was. I didn't know what species of tree it was. 
but I started to recognize them all around this park and thus began my practice of meditating with trees. And I found something really profound in those experiences of just tuning into a single tree, having a relationship of I'm breathing out what you breathe in, you're breathing out what I breathe in. We are one. We are in communion. Thank you. You know, kind of a immense spiritual connection to these trees. And then, of course, I discovered that they were alder trees, and I started to read more of the lore. Um, alder trees have a very short uh, life expectancy, and one could take that to mean that they're very generous and that they're meant to fall and become fertilizer for older trees, older growth trees. And, you know, something about that seemed to, to stick to me. There's something about the, the blood red kind of color inside when they're first cut into that, that, that has been evocative of lore in um, the place of my ancestors. And so there was a bit of sense of connection to my lineage by exploring these trees. And so I just decided these are my trees. You know, and for years I was satisfied with the alder trees were my trees. I'd collect sticks, I'd collect barks, I'd make wands, I'd, you know, and then one experience was really profound is that the very first tree that I started communing with was torn down, taken down. It didn't fall down. It just one day I went there and it was gone. And I felt an immense emotional reaction. I imagined people at the library walking by, watching me crying at the base of a cut down tree, you know, literally nothing but a stump left and wondering, you know, what was happening with this man. And really what it was, was that I just had had a profound connection in this place with this tree and it was gone. I was lucky to have collected a, a, a wand from there and a staff from there. So I had a piece, but I started to wander around looking for the next alder tree to connect to. And sure enough, pretty much I became the steward of the Central Park's 18 alder trees and I'd visit them and make my rounds and touch their bark and look up at them. And it became a thing. And I started to feel like I had a community. I mean, obviously I'm not insane and I know that they're not uh, the same as people, but there was something really profound about acting as if, you know, walking around acting as if manifesting a relationship Um projecting a relationship. It was very powerful. And I continue that to this day. I've expanded my community by looking for the next tree. And I remember very distinctly opening myself up to, okay, I'm going to connect to another kind of tree in this park and see what happens. And the poplar trees really spoke to me. And, and so there's a, a stand of poplar trees in one part. And I like to hang my hammock there and look up and listen to the way the wind blows through the trees. And I imagine that that's how my children will find me when I'm gone is by walking and standing amongst the trees and listening to the wind wisp their way, its way through the, through the branches. And I think actually for me, the best spirituality is not in the finding, um, but in the searching and seeking and knowing that it can always be found anew. And so I look forward to what's next for me and for you. So I've, I've enjoyed sharing these stories. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. More than that, I hope that you um, found yourself spacing in, which is different than spacing out. Spacing out is a detachment from the content, and spacing in, spacing in is more of a deeper dive because of the content.
And if it caused you to pause and space in and think about your own process and where you are and what inspires you and what you're drawn to, and if it inspires you to take a step in a direction toward something more meaningful, more spiritual, that would be delightful to hear. Please use whatever means you have access to me, either through the podcast, leaving me a message, or reach out to me personally. I'd love to hear that this uh, episode made a difference for you. Many blessings.